0: If you would turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18, we're going to talk about, as Jesus <coughs> outlines for us, the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to be upfront and honest with you today and tell you that on this first section where he's talking about these parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, uh, Luke 13, did I say the wrong uh did I say the wrong chapter? Luke 13, verse 18. I might have said Luke 18, but it's Luke 13, verse 18 that we're starting at. And I will say right off that these these parables—they're um, not the easiest to understand. And as I studied this passage and as I looked at commentaries, I saw widely um, diverging opinions as to what Jesus was trying to convey. Through these parables, and so as we read these first few verses, um, we will kind of, I think, kind of take a look uh, at these verses kind of from both angles a little bit, and see what the Lord has to show us. So we're going to start out by looking at these parables. So we're going to start out by reading Luke 13:18 to 22, and if you're keeping notes, um, uh, this is just the first point. Him talking about the mustard seed and the leaven. Now, Jesus always often told stories as a way to convey his messages. So let's read these. Then said he, unto what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into the garden, and it grew <clears throat> and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures a meal till the whole was leavened. <clears throat> and he went through the cities and villages teaching and journe- journeying toward Jerusalem. Alright, so th- this first parable is talking about the mustard seed. And it's interesting that he is starting here and talking about the kingdom of God this way. Because what does he say in another place? He says, if you have faith, like a grain of mustard seed, what can you do? He says you can move mountains. So he's talking about this little seed that becomes a great tree. And how, you know, it doesn't, probably doesn't look like much when you plant it in the ground. Maybe if you watched it closely every day you wouldn't notice much change, but as time goes on it changes and grows fairly rapidly. It's kind of like when you are going to a family reunion when you're growing up as a kid. I don't get it as much now as an adult, but when I was a kid people would always say you've really grown this year. Now. For me, to look in the mirror every day, I don't really see, see that much change. And a lot of people will say, you know, um, it doesn't feel that much different to be a year older. When you, when you get to your birthday, you're like, well, it doesn't feel that much different because it's a gradual thing. But anyway, Jesus is talking about how exponential growth can happen and then he kind of talks about the same thing with this leaven and the loaf. Now, there are a couple of different viewpoints on this, and I'm not exactly sure definitively where I stand. But the first one is that God is simply saying that the kingdom of God will grow and grow under the apostles' um, leadership, and then more and more people will find rest in the kingdom of God. And of course we know that at the first, the children of Israel were God's chosen people. He came to them. As a matter of fact, at one point he says to the Phoenician woman, I am come, but only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so his his focus at first was to redeem the children of Israel. Now we can look at that and we can say... Well, how short-sighted is that? But God has the right and the prerogative to save who he will save. I think about that when I think about the fact that when God wiped everyone off the face of the earth, he could have wiped out Noah and his family too. He was justified in doing that because Noah was not perfect as evidenced by the wine vineyard that Noah made after he got off the ark and got drunk and was naked in his tent, Noah was not saved because he was some great man, although it does say that he lived a life of holiness before God largely. What's the key phrase in that story? It's not Noah was greater than his brethren, so therefore he was saved. It said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so that um, is the key. And then with this leaven, it just talks about how when you make uh, a loaf of bread, you use yeast, um, which is the primary leavening agent, or other leavening agents to make it rise, to make it bigger. And uh, so, and my, my brother could tell you a little bit about that. He loves to bake bread and I love to smell bread as it makes, so that works out <laughs> That works out nicely. But um, anyway, so you have these two pictures of, of growth. Now, where the negative connotation comes in is, of course, we know that in the parable of the sower, it talks about how the birds came and took some of the seeds away, and they did not sprout and grow. And so birds do have the potential to kill growing seed. And then we also see that with leaven in the Bible, it's often referred to as a as a picture of sin. Paul said in the New Testament, in the epistles, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You know, and we could use a modern picture of, if I put just a couple drops of antifreeze in a glass of water, would you want to drink it? The answer should be absolutely not. Because even those drops can make you very sick at the least. Um, And as I look at these pictures, um, and I think about the kingdom of God, I think about the fact that there are a lot of people that are earnestly seeking the kingdom of God and preaching the gospel from a true heart of wanting to see people converted. But there's a growing number of people who claim to be preachers of the gospel, who are preaching for their own gain, who are preaching false gospels. Paul said, I preach Christ and Him crucified. And he said, if anybody preaches another gospel than that gospel that you've heard from me, let them be accursed. What did Paul say the gospel was? He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Christ... um, died according to the Scriptures, was buried according to the Scriptures, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that's the key to this whole thing right there. If someone is preaching to you something, you better search the Scriptures to see if it's true. Paul commended the Bereans. to They searched the Scriptures daily to find out if the things that Paul said were so. Paul, the one who said, imitate me, but he gave a really interesting caveat to that. He said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. In saying that, Paul was saying, if I divert from Christ, don't imitate me. Because Paul was not claiming perfection. And if you look in Matthew 13, 31 and 32, you'll see Matthew's depiction of this parable and we we won't take the time to read that right now, but kind of the the same picture. But as we look at these parables, I just think of it as this. As the the church grows, as the gospel grew throughout uh, the first century, so there came a need to defend the gospel. Tradition holds... And the way you read it would, would support that, that the book of John was written primarily because certain people were taking parts of the gospel and saying, this is true, but this isn't. And you see in what John writes, he said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you may have life through his name. That's why he wrote it. So that you would believe the truth, and that you would have life because you believed. Because a partial truth is a full lie. And the devil devil doesn't deal, you know, a lot of times we think, well, the devil's a deceiver. And we think of deception as, as totally, blatantly untrue. But most deception has a grain of truth in it. That's why it works so well. Um, and so we need to be on our guard that as we watch the kingdom of God grow, that it's growing in the right ways and that it's true growth. You know, um, Joel Olstein he fills a former basketball stadium with, I think, probably twenty-five or 30,000 people every Sunday. But I've watched him preach a couple times and I've never heard him talk about that you are a sinner and you need to repent. That we need to keep short accounts with God. That we need to be holy and righteous because God calls us to that. Because he gives us the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus hung on the cross for that. When people say, well, I, I'm a pretty good person and I don't have that much sin or I, I don't really I think I have sin, I say, well, then why did Jesus hang on a cross? The God of the universe did not hang naked on a cross so because you and I were pretty good. No, He hung there because we were vile at best. But He made us righteous because of who He is. Now in this second section of our passage today, Luke 13, 23-30, Jesus is going to start to get very specific about what the kingdom of God will look like as far as the people that will be there. And here's what he says. Then said one of them unto him, Lord, are there few that will be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the strait gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up, and hath shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and he shall answer, and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then you shall begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and ye shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east, and from the west, and from the north. And from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. And as we look at this, this is some tough stuff. This is, this is one of those times or one of those passages where if I just wanted to, you know, focus on the positive... I might skip over this passage. might even, uh, from a human standpoint, rip it out of my Bible. (laughs) Because it's not something that I want to read. The only way to truly appreciate the good news of the gospel is to realize the bad news first. And uh, so Jesus says here, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many I say unto you will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Um, you know, there's coming a time when God's grace will be removed when his whosoever will make home will not apply. <coughs> when the door will be shut, Chiefest among those for us is the the day that we die, as I mentioned earlier, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And some people think that there's a purgatory that you that you can sit in this limbo, in the ethos, and that people who are living can still pray for you and that there's hope for your soul. But we read about the rich man and Lazarus, which I believe we'll get to here in the book of Luke, and it basically says there: there was Abraham's bosom, which was the precursor to heaven. Then there was hell. No two place, no middle place, and a great gulf fixed between the two, so there was no traveling between the two. Because he's because the rich man said, "Just dip your finger in a cup of cold water and bring it to me." that I may feel it on my tongue and get some relief. For those who think that hell is going to be a party, for those who think that maybe it's just a metaphor of nothingness, it's not true. It's a real place. Another passage, Jesus says that it's a place where the worm dieth not. It's going to be a place of eternal torment. And a place that I don't want anyone to go. You know, a lot of times people say, well, why would a loving God send people to hell? And I used to used to say that God sent people to hell because they were disobedient. But I've since rethought that a little bit and I've realized that God doesn't send anyone to hell. They choose to go there when they reject the one way to get to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. Again, why would he have hung on the cross if hell wasn't real? If if hell wasn't something to fear, why would he have stood between heaven and hell for me and bridged the gap between the two? There would be no reason. Another Bible teacher, Rob Bell, said that we should simply understand the cross as an act of love. Again, his writings were devoid of anything to do with confession and repentance. And the problem with that is, again, why would the Holy Son of God go through that torment if there was no need? He did it because there was a need, and if there was a need for him to die... And there's a need for us to embrace our redemption. If you were sitting on the Titanic on that day in 1912, and it was about to go under, and you had the opportunity to scramble aboard a lifeboat, but you said... Oh, I'm just going to stay here on the boat. Then you would have perished. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because some many men stayed on board the Titanic so that their women and children could survive. But I guess another part of that analogy is like Jesus staying on that cross so that you and I could survive. You ever think about the fact that one of the things that the people said when they were mocking him when he was on the cross, they said he saved others, himself he cannot save. Oh, if only they understood. The reality of it is, himself he would not save. Because to save, Himself would be to sentence us to a life, to a Christless eternity. And then he says, he talks about these people who are standing outside the door saying, Let us in. That kind of makes me think of the story of Noah. I don't know for sure if there were people knocking on the door after God closed it, but I bet there might have been. It says in Peter's epistles that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so he was no doubt extending this invitation, Hey, get on the ark with us when the flood comes, so that you can be saved. And none of them heeded his warning. They all laughed to scorn. And then... As the flood waters are rising and as the rain is coming down, there might have been pounding on the door, but they couldn't open it. Why? Because God shut it. And just as God shut the door of the ark, He's going to shut the door to heaven, and He will be perfectly justified in doing so. This is not something, again, that is pleasant to think about. He says, I know not whence ye are. Now we often ask, Do you know him? I ask, I ask that a lot. Do you know him? Not about him, do you know him? But also we need to ask, Does he know you? We sing that hymn, I am his and he is mine. What a glorious truth that is for the believer that He is ours. Alright. Um, and so then, he kind of goes into, he goes into the torments of hell. He says, um, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the prophets go to the kingdom of God, and you will be thrust out. What is he talking about here? He's talking about these, Jews and sometimes these very religious Jews, that don't recognize him as the Messiah. And he's like, you're going to be out of it. You're not going to be able to get into the kingdom of heaven. And then what does he say after that? He says, and they shall come from the east and from the west, and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Lord, I'm thankful that God opened the door for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. I'm a Gentile dog, and yet in the kingdom of God, I'm a chosen, precious son, a royal heir. And no one, no earthly leader, can take that away from me, ever. What a blessed truth. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and first which shall be last. God's economy of success is way different than ours. There are so many people that we've never heard speak publicly or know half the things they do. But when they get to heaven, God's going to know and he may even allow us to know some of it so we can see this person served God with all their lives even though they didn't do it for fanfare they didn't do it for for attention they didn't do it for accolades they did it because it was the right thing to do i have a friend who always talks about how we need to we need to give money to the poor, we need to do more for the poor. And by that he means that we need to put politicians in place who will tax the rich people and make them give money to the poor. Because apparently he doesn't think that certain wealthy Christians are pulling their fair share. But the one thing that I think about when I hear things like that is if you're doing it right, people aren't going to know how much you get. Because it's between you and God. In the Old Testament, there was a 10% tithe. In the New Testament, God simply says, God loves a cheerful giver. Maybe what he has compelled you to give is 5%. Maybe what he's compelled you to give is 40%. That doesn't matter. And I should not judge you on the basis of what you give. But God judges you on how you give it. And so, we will be surprised, I think, to find out that some of these people just lived quiet, unassuming lives and reached out to people. You know, a lot of times I think about that in the context of, to use a modern analogy, the whole millionaire thing. Other than when we think about millionaires, we think about big cars, big houses. All this flashy stuff that tells the world, hey, I'm a millionaire. But there was a book, I never read it, but I heard about it, called The Millionaire Next Door. And it was talking about, there's a lot of millionaires that live in regular residential neighborhoods, that don't put on airs, that buy used cars, that, that do all these things that normal people do. And that's why they have the resources, because they were wise with their resources. A lot of times when people look like a million bucks, it's because they're pretending to look like a million bucks. And all this to say that God cares about the heart. And He's really going to get down to a heart level, especially when we get to the last day. I just wanted to, if somebody could read across reverence for me in Matthew 25, 10 to 12. Matthew 25, 10 to 12. Just another passage as we think about the end of days. If somebody has it, if they could read it for us. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Again, Jesus is talking about the fact that this door is going to be shut. Right now, the door is open, and we have an opportunity to go into the door. And Jesus is that door. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. He also says that he knocks at the door of our hearts. And that if we open it, he's not going to force his way in, but if we open it, he will come in and he will sup with us, he will dine with us, he will have fellowship with us. The idea of having the fellowship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is an amazing thought. All right, well, I want to share this, this story kind of illustrating the kingdom of God. Says, the story is told of a farmhand who had worked for a married couple for several years. As time went on, the couple grew older and older, and they couldn't do as much as they had on the farm, and the farm was beginning to look a little shabby. The paint on the barn was peeling, the fences had holes in them, and the, s- and the slots were loose. The gravel road had potholes in it, shingles on top of the farmhouse were beaten and weathered, and needed replacing But as the farmhand made his way to milk the cows each day, he thought, What is it to me? It's not my farm. Then one day, the farmer and his wife asked him to come for dinner. They told him how much he had meant to them. They told him that they had had no children to inherit the farm, so they wanted to give him the farm when when they died. The next day, the farmhand was walking to the nursing barn. And he noticed the paint on the barn. In a few days, he had painted the barn and fixed the fence. And in the next few weeks, he was putting a new roof on the farmhouse and putting new gravel on the road. Why would he do that? What difference? What was the difference in his attitude? He was now an heir. And as a son, he began to treat the old farmhouse different than he had before. And so it is with us. We are heirs of the kingdom of God. And because we are heirs, we have the joy of knowing that what we do, we do because of the fabulous gift of salvation that our Father has given us. Before we come to Christ, we're kind of just walking through this life, not even realizing that the fact that we draw a breath is because of God's mercy. And then, we come to Christ and we read verses like in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, where it says, it is of God's mercies that we are not consumed every day. And when you're when you when you become a believer and you read something like that, it hits you like a ton of bricks that hey, God's mercy is before me today, even if the only thing that seems to be going right is that I woke up. That's a mercy. And then you read in, in Lamentations chapter three, and the man there is going through such a travel. Travel and it and says it's good for the man to bear the yoke in the youth in his youth, and it talks about him kind of biting the dust and discouragement, but then at the end, it says, "His mercies are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness." And you know when you look at Job, especially the opening chapters, you see all the things that happen to him. And over and over again, you see this. In all these things, Job sinned not. Job continually had a right response to God. Now, we know that by the end of the book, he started to develop some self-righteousness that God had to deal with, and Job thankfully responded with humility says that he put his hand over his mouth and could not answer the Lord. But God still acknowledged Job's righteousness for he told Job's friends to have Job pray for them and maybe God would show his mercy. And I just, I think about the difference between those that are trying to do good works to get to heaven, which will never happen because we can't do enough good works for that. And those that do good works because they say that God loved me and gave himself for me. And so I'm living my life by the faith of the Son of God. It's not about me anymore. As John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest born among women, said, He must increase. And may that be the prayer of all of our hearts, that He would increase. Then, and that story was by a man named John Stripe, by the way, if you ever want to look that up. And then um, Jesus talks about His mission. Jesus is going to talk about His ultimate mission as we come to the end of this chapter, a little bit. And it said in verse 31 Then the same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And Jesus stands resolute and he says, And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou which killeth the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered... Thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I, I always get a kick out of people who say that Jesus was just a God of love, don't judge people. But look at what he says about Herod. Go and tell that fox. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not want to be called a fox. He was basically saying that Herod was a man of cunning and deception. And he wasn't going to listen to anything that Herod had to say. He said... Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils and do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. He's talking about the things that he still had to do before he would go to the cross and the third day rise again. Then he says, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for I cannot For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. We read in another passage that it says that Jesus set his face as a flint to Jerusalem. Peter tried to stop him when he was on his way to Jerusalem. He said, far be it from you, Lord, to to die in this way that you're saying you're going to die. And What did Jesus say to Peter? Probably the greatest... Insult the harshest thing you could possibly say. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Can you imagine being Peter just a, a few weeks before that, maybe even less? He had said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and next thing he knows, Jesus is saying, get thee behind me, Satan. The highs and the lows of Peter's life encourage me because I've had some of those Highs and lows. My my parents will tell you that, especially in my teenage years, and sometimes even now, I can be a brash person. I can say things without thinking and regret what I said afterwards, but afterwards it's too late. And Peter can relate. But this... the same man who was... Saying to Jesus, far be it from you, would go on in Acts chapter 2 to preach the risen Christ. And he and his fellow disciple John would say to the Pharisees there in Acts chapter 4, judge ye whether it be right that we follow God or follow man. But we can only talk of those things which we have seen and heard. And they went back to the disciples after they were released from that time, and instead of saying, Lord, keep us, and instead of locking the door of the upper room, as they no doubt did after the death of Christ, Knowing he was alive made made them pray this, give us more boldness that we may preach the word. Paul had a similar thought. He was threatened on every side, he says, but not perplexed. And he said, pray for me that I would have more boldness to share Christ. May we all pray that prayer. And mean it. And of course, Jesus is grieving over Jerusalem. He wants so much to gather them and protect them, but they wouldn't take him. And so, in a certain respect, Israel would become decimated. And would spend a lot of time as not a nation. Of course, Jesus, God keeps his word, and he said that the children of Israel would continue to be blessed, and in 1948, they became a nation again. And whatever world leaders come against Israel, they pay the price. God tells us to pray for the peace of Israel. And we need to pray for a president that would pray for the peace of Israel as well. Because it will not go well for a leader that rejects Israel. And then, Jesus says, You shall not see me until the time come when you will say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. we know a short time later that when he went to Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey, and the disciples said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And many others by the roadway. And then a week later, or less than a week later, he was crucified on the Roman cross for crimes he did not commit so that you and I could go free. And again, as I referenced in the breaking of bread, he prayed before he went to the cross that the Lord would, would give him back the glory that he had before the world was. He said, I've finished what you've given me to do. Now I'll bring me back into your glory. And we see in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and that after that, God had highly exalted him, and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Even those who denied his existence, even those who will spend eternity in hell, will still first kneel before the Lord. Martin Luther said this, he said, the life of Christianity Consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a Savior. And it is another thing to say He is my Savior and Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it cuts like a sword. We thank you for Jesus' boldness and for always giving him wisdom. And we thank you, you for his obedience, Lord. We pray that we would be obedient. We pray that we would be bold. Not afraid to say things even if even if it's bad news. We think of Stephen who, who was stoned because he, he preached boldly to the Sanhedrin and then was dragged out of the city and he said... Much like you did, Lord, he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. But he saw heaven open, and he saw you standing at the right hand of God. And we thank you that you are there today, interceding for us. We pray that you would bless us as we go our way that we would honor you this week. And that we would be Jesus to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.